0: Yes. Yeah. really thought I was going to drop my iPad there. I mean, you have no idea how many times I have been afraid that I was going to do something like that. And of course, the iPad would hit the stage floor and it would break. It would not work. And, and then I would just have to wing it for the next 35 minutes or, or so. So I, I want to start today with this idea. And it's this idea that, that preachers, that we are essentially storytellers. And I know that when I, I say storytelling, the first thing that many people are going to think of is some sort of fantastical, fictional tale. Right? If someone tells you a story or if someone reads you a story, uh, typically you're thinking of something maybe that involves fairies and elves and some wizards, maybe like a Lord of the Rings type vibe. So I understand if someone who is a preacher, if they heard me say, hey, preachers are storytellers, I understand that they may at first get a little bit offended. Right, but truthfully, I do believe that that is what we are. That's what we are doing. We, we are recalling or we are retelling stories. Now, they're factual stories, and they're factual stories with a, a divine purpose, of course. But when we open our Bibles, and if we were to, to share today the, the Exodus story, or the creation story, or the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, well, what is it that we are doing? We are, we are retelling a story. And of course, while we retell the story, we are doing our best to remain uh, faithful, where we're trying to to add some some insight and wisdom, something that's going to help you better understand or better appreciate the factual story that you are hearing. Uh, We're hoping that we're going to find a way that we can uh, expand on on these truths that are contained in our Bible, expand on them in a bit of a, a deeper way. But while we are doing that, always striving to remain faithful in the retelling of the story. Uh, there's something else that, that preachers do as well when it comes to telling stories, not do we just retell stories, uh, we also tell our own stories as well very often. right? I get to come up here and I get to, to recount personal experiences, uh, those that are given to me firsthand and also those that are passed to me secondhand as well. And when we tell our own stories, we, we hope that our stories are going to help clarify or, or make understandable the scriptures that we read to you each and every week. Now, that means as a preacher, you must have a very good source for content. Uh, sometimes a, a funny personal story is going to be appropriate. Uh, sometimes, though, it's going to be maybe a story of, of personal struggle that the preacher has gone through himself. That's what's going to suit the bill. It, it is important that a preacher share their stories, even though their stories of loss and their stories of pain. Because we have to make sure that we are being transparent and revealing our own humanity. We have to let the congregation see our hurt. And of course, we also have to let the congregation share in our victories. So I do think that a a good preacher needs to be an authentic storyteller. Part of the, the problem that arises for me, though, is that not everything that happens in my life is worthy of telling the story of. Right, most days, the story of Daniel's life is not something that I think would help you or edify you and help you understand the scripture. If I were to tell you the story of this past Tuesday, for example, it, it would sound like this. It would say, you know, I came into my office after having a nice breakfast at home. Uh, I sat down at my desk and I read some commentaries on Judges chapter 13. Uh, I had a nice little lunch, a little salad. Yes, I purposely picked a day of my week where I had a salad and not a double quarter pounder so that no one would judge me. I then spent my afternoon, you know, working on sermon structure, uh, went home, did a little household chores here or there, tried to pay attention to my parental responsibilities. Right? See, Some of you are yawning already at that story. It, it isn't very gripping. So the preacher has to always be on the prowl for good and true stories that may intersect uh, their lives, with the sermon, with the illustrations that we're going to be talking about today, hoping that it can help hammer home the wisdom or the lesson that we're getting from a piece of scripture. So every position that I find myself in, I am always on the prowl. I'm always examining whether anything that's happening around me is worthwhile. Uh, If something interesting happens that I think has value to it, I tuck it away in that little database in the back of my brain so that I can hopefully use it on a rainy day to, to help drive a message home. But if you are preaching 40, 45, or 50 times a year, you come to realize you are going to need a lot of good stories. And one of my fears becomes that I'm going to start telling you a story for the second or third or the fourth time. I promise you, in the last two years, it has already happened. Some of you have heard some of my best stories more than once. And I'm also willing to bet that if you guys stick in with me for another decade, you will hear many of my stories time and time again. Just remember, well, maybe the tenth time for you, Matt, it might be the first time for someone else, okay? So I'm always on the prowl for a good story. Which brings me to the other night, Uh, we've been in a very busy, busy season of life. Uh, It just seems like there's always somewhere to go, something to do, and I'm grateful because I've also been in seasons of life where I feel like I have nothing to do, and that's not better, but there wasn't time to cook dinner, so I I told Linda, I said, I'll run by Kroger's and I'll just grab a few random things, and and we'll just eat real fast. Uh, Blythe, my smallest daughter, the brown-haired daughter, uh, she loves sushi. Any sushi fans in the house? Alright, a handful of you. The rest of you, give it a try. It's not as scary as it sounds, but Blythe likes sushi. So I go to Kroger's and I pick up one of their little sushi rolls that they have there. The Connie uh, is her favorite. It's the imitation crab with the um, uh, avocado and cucumber inside of it. I think she just likes eating like her mommy does. She feels like a big girl when she eats the sushi. So I don't even remember what everyone else has. or made it in some chicken nuggets involved. But I, I pass her her sushi, and I turn around, and I'm, I'm working on some other stuff. And, and I hear her little cute voice say behind me, she says, ooh, bonus guacamole. <laughs> and for a split second, I was very confused because no one was having Mexican food. There was no guacamole that I had served on the table, and then it hit me. If you like sushi, you are familiar with this small little flower of green paste that gets put on your sushi tray. And as it struck me and I turned as fast as I could, I watched her with a dab of wasabi on her finger straight into her mouth. Expecting the cool, refreshing blast of guacamole, instead she got the sinus-clearing power of wasabi. And as her father, there was nothing I could do to help. I mean, all I could do is encourage her. I said, keep drinking water, honey, it will pass. And you know what else I could do? I could also remind her, hey, that next time, before you put something in your mouth that you don't know what it is, ask your daddy, right? Because I'll tell you if it's okay to eat or not. You see where this is going? Immediately, a light bulb went off. I said, this is going to make a great sermon illustration someday, right? Things we look at that we think are going to be good for us, but are really going to cause us pain. Things that if we just took a moment and if we prayed to God and we said, God, is this what you want for me? Maybe he would have told us, do not put the wasabi in your mouth. So when I use this story at some point down the road, will you all please pretend that you're hearing it for the first time? Perfect. Thank you. This need that there is for stories, it does create some contention in my inner circle. Because everything that happens around me could end up being used in a sermon at some point. For example, I may have in my possession right now a a video of Mike Tingley on a rope swing on a mountain in North Carolina that I'm just waiting to unveil that one one day. I I think I'm going to have to start carrying um, name, image, and likeness contracts around with me to make sure I don't get in trouble for sharing people's stories. But this has become such a common point of conversation in my home. Um, For Pastor Appreciation Month, my wife bought me this lovely uh, mug. Um, You can't read it here, but I think there's a picture we can put on the screen. It says, Pastor, warning, anything you say or do could be used in a sermon. So be warned. If something profound or something funny happens within my earshot, if you make the mistake of mistaking wasabi for guacamole, you too might have your story used to hopefully draw someone closer to their creator. To hopefully help bring them knowledge of who their savior is. So in the greatest sense of the word, in the most wonderful sense of the words, I do get to say that I am a storyteller. And most of the stories, the vast majority of the stories that I ever tell, were first told by someone else. So that means that there is indeed a storyteller who is much, much better at this than I am because his stories will endure forever. Very often, my stories are forgotten by the time the 4 o'clock NFL game kicks off, right? His stories have been retold by countless numbers of people over thousands and thousands of years. It's his stories that us preachers do our very best to try to introduce people to or or try to guide people through, right? My stories absolutely pale in comparison to the story arc that is in your Bible, As I was thinking about this idea of being a storyteller, though, there was one trait that I noticed that that I do get to have in common with the greatest storyteller of all time. We both do repeat some of our stories. Now, admittedly, we repeat them for very different reasons. I only repeat my stories because my simple human brain is very limited, and I cannot remember if I had already told you that guacamole story or not. But when God intentionally repeats himself, when we see him writing a very similar story through very different times and through very different generations, it's not because he forgot that he had already done this once before. Right? God repeats himself intentionally because, again, he understands as our creator our own limitations. He has the ability to see the entire story before it's even been written. So when God repeats a similar story with a similar theme again and again and again, it's his way of telling us to pay close attention. I just come up here like a bad stand-up comedian performing in the Catskills in 1962, saying, hey guys, stop me if you've heard this one before. right?" But that's not what God says. God says, listen closely to me. He says, I've already told you this more than once. Listen this time. There's one particular story that God seems to like to retell, uh, again, through different generations and through many different people. And as we, or or I I will say, we will intersect with this same type story again today in Judges chapter 13. Okay, I'm going to give you a little brief synopsis of the story. And again, don't stop me if you have heard this one somewhere else before, but just see if this rings any bells to you. It's a story where there's a woman. And it's a woman who has never before conceived a child. She's visited by a a divine uh, being, let's just say, and then she miraculously gives birth to a son. God uses that son to do something amazing or to advance his story that he is writing for humanity. Have you guys ever heard a story like that before? I hope everybody raises their hands. We've all heard that story before, haven't we? We've actually heard it many, many times, though, in our Bible. Uh, think back, Abraham and Sarah. Isn't this their story, too? Genesis 18, 9 and 10, it says, They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Sarah would, as the divine visitor said, go on to birth a son. And through that son, the whole world would one day be blessed. I, I think it was months and months ago, we briefly discussed the story of, of Hannah. Hannah and her husband Elkanah. First uh, Samuel's where this story is found. Chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Again, this may sound familiar. It says, they rose in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew, knew Hannah, his wife, And the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Again, Hannah would give birth to Samuel, the the final judge of Israel, the man that would one day anoint the first and the second kings of the people. You may also have recalled the story of a priest named Zechariah. He was married to a barren woman named Elizabeth. In Luke chapter 1, verses 5 and 7, it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiyah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they both were advanced in years. Again, Elizabeth would, too, go on to bear a son. A man that was destined to become the forerunner of the Messiah. Uh, You know him as John the Baptist. And of course, we can't forget the most famous example of all. It's the one that I bet was the first story that popped to your mind when I gave you that synopsis. The story of Mary and her husband Joseph. Luke chapter 1, 26 through 28 says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. I hope if you're here today or if you're watching from home, you're familiar with how that story is going to end. Mary gives birth to the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. But did you know that there is, again, a similar related story here found in Judges chapter 13 that we're going to look at today? In Judges 13, we're going to see the similar storyline repeat itself, that the names and the faces and the places, they're all going to be a little bit different. But it's this idea that God is going to bring forth a prodigy from a woman who has never been able to conceive previously, and that he is going to use this child to write his story. The fact that this keeps happening over and over again sure seems like it's something that God wants us to remember. Again, in Isaac, he brings about the answer to the promise that he made uh, to to make a great people from Abraham, a people that he would one day again use to bring salvation to the world in Samuel. He raises up a prophet who would usher Israel into a new time, who would establish the line of David. In John, we see that this one that would go ahead of the Messiah is born in exactly the right place, and exactly the right time, to exactly the right people. And in Jesus Christ, he brought about a Savior. He brought the Messiah, the sacrificial lamb, that, that would call humanity finally back to the Father. And in Judges, what we're going to see in Judges today for the very first time, is we're going to see a judge that was called from the time of conception. Right, Not voluntarily taking the job like those who had come before him. This is one who the job was given to from the womb. And we're going to spend the next four weeks, including this week, examining the entire story arc of what is probably the most famous judge in this book. His name is Samson. Samson, again, was conceived and born by the will of God for one purpose. Was it to save God's people from the Philistines? I don't actually think so. I don't think that's what we're actually going to see over the next four weeks of studying his life. I think what we're going to see over the next four weeks is that the great hero, Samson, unfortunately, is actually a, a quite detestable fellow. He actually never brings victory over the Philistines. Right? That, actually, that, that wouldn't happen until the time of King David, and that time of King David is actually quickly approaching now. Samson, though, from the time of conception, he exists for the purpose to to show us that humanity is never going to be able to fully redeem itself. That no matter how smart we are, or in Samson's case, how strong we are, that evil has taken up residence in the heart of men, and because of it, we need a Savior. Samson is born directly to point to our need for the Messiah to come. And yes, what we see in the beginning of chapter 13, uh, you you could see it as your stereotypical type of foreshadowing, foreshadowing of when God is going to come and tell a very similar story once again to that virgin who was betrothed to a man whose family was from that little town of Bethlehem. Uh, Read with me in Judges 13, verse 3, as we begin. It says, The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. You see, I think God only interjects himself into humanity this way when he has a very good reason. And again, I'm excited that over the next three weeks after this that we are going to be able to take our time and look at a full spectrum look into what Samson's life looked like and what Samson's failures looked like. I hope that because of this you're going to leave with a much better understanding of this man than just recalling that he is simply the guy with the crazy long hair and the crazy strength who was able to pull a whole building down on top of himself. Chapter 13, it does tell us about the birth of Samson, but I do not think it's actually the main story of this chapter. This chapter is much more, uh, has much more to do, I should say, with Samson's parents uh, and with the state of the Israelite people in general. You See, there's details in chapter 13 that if we're tempted to just skip over and go to the exciting stuff that happens next, we're not going to be able to fully appreciate what we are going to read in chapters 14 and 15 and 16. With that, if you have been hoping for a bit of a, a reprise from all of the ugliness that we have been seeing and hearing about in Judges, you are going to get that this week in chapter 13. Uh, but I will warn you, it will be very short-lived. The second half of the book of Judges from here on out, it continues with what we have seen in the first half, this tradition of being shocking and strange and disgusting in the stories that are recorded here. But this week, we get this brief Break to come up out of the whirlpool for air. But remember that we are soon going to be sucked back down, and we're going to be sucked back down the whirlpool of judges deeper than we've ever been before. We set the stage for this in verse 1 of the chapter. Just go back a few verses. It says, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Okay, you should be used to hearing opening verses like that in the book of Judges, right? That's about how all of our chapters have started. The people, they do evil. And again, I'll remind you that when it says the people do evil, what that almost always means is that they have forgotten the one true God and they began to worship the gods of all of the people who surrounded them in the lands. Also very important what we learn out of verse 1 is that the enemy now is no longer the Canaanites, or the Midianites, or the Ammonites. In fact, it's no ites at all. The bad guys are now the Philistines. And we haven't really heard about these people in a while. Back in chapter 3, we discussed them very briefly. Uh, if you remember, there was the judge who killed 600 of them with an ox goad. Right? It was like that cattle prod thing that we talked about. But now the Philistines, they are back, and they are bigger, and they are badder than they ever were before. And it says that they oppressed the people of Israel for an entire generation. Right? Again, it's important to remember here the time frame where we're talking about now a point where an entire generation of Israelites have been born, they have grown, and they have had families of their own since God has last raised a Redeemer for them. At this point, eight weeks into this study, you should know the cycle of Judges because we've seen it many times before. Right? The cycle says the people are going to stumble and fall. We've seen that. We, say, we should say next, well, God's going to hand them over to an oppressor. We've seen that. But what should come next is the people should come to their senses and they should cry out to God, and and then God should redeem them. He should send a Redeemer. But this isn't what we see happen anymore in chapter 13. Remember what I just said in in verse 3, what we just read a couple minutes ago. It says, God begins to set into motion the conception of a man whom his spirit would be upon, and who would be a redeemer, albeit a very limited variety of redeemer for his people. What never happens in this exchange is that the people no longer cry out for help. You see, the people of Israel at this point, they've reached this cursed point where they don't don't even recognize how deep down the whirlpool they are anymore. At this point, they are so upside down, they are so lost, that they aren't even smart enough anymore to yell out for help. It makes you wonder, would they even know who it is that they were crying out to if they were to do it? They're just sitting and suffering in silence because of their own disobedience. And based upon their lack of pleading for their own salvation, it seems like maybe they've become comfortable with this lot in life that they have. See, but even in their own ignorance, their own need for salvation... It's still in God's nature to provide that for them. So without the people crying out, God puts into motion his own plan for a, a boy to be born, and this boy was going to be set aside from the time of birth for this very intentional job. Another thing that's also missing here in chapter 13, there is no formal announcement like we've seen made in chapters before, right? It doesn't say, and the Lord raised up a deliverer. In fact, from, from here on out, after chapter 13, all of the patterns that we have become accustomed to in the book of Judges, they all stop. You see, redemption after the time of Samson will look further and further from possible every single week. But that's a story for next month. Here today, what we, we, we need to see is that this, that this character Samson is born. And as I've alluded to, what, what we're going to read in the coming weeks is not going to be a story of how great Samson was. It's going to be the story of how flawed and how broken Samson was and how his flaws and some of his flaws and brokenness, they will be unrecognizable to us if we don't understand the parameters that God laid out to Samson's mother when she was first visited by this divine figure. So I want you to read with me. we're going to backtrack, read verse three again and we're going to head through to verse five. It says, The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink. Eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So what we just read is something new. This is not something that has ever been asked of any judge up until this point. Uh, But the angel of the Lord says, Samson, or this son that you're going to bear, that he is going to be a Nazarite from birth. Now, again, that's not a term term that we use very often, but a a Nazarite is someone who takes a very specific vow to the Lord. There's that word vow again, like we talked about last week. We should remember that breaking a vow to the Lord can have very serious consequences. And this particular vow that this angel comes to this woman and tells her that her son should follow, the vow of the Nazarite, uh, is described for us in some detail in in the book of Numbers. Uh, This isn't going to be in the slideshow. I just put the scripture reference up there. If you want to jot it down, you can read this uh, later, but I I didn't want you to have to flip too far away from Judges. Uh, Numbers 6, 1 through 7 It says the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of the Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord. He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink. He shall not drink any juice of the grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. So raisins are out of the question in case you were wondering. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his hair of his head grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord he shall not go near a dead body. Not even for his father, for his mother, for his brother or sister. If they die, shall he make himself unclean, because his separation to God is on his head. This is a special vow. Uh, It's a vow that that one would make in order to show their dedication to the Lord. And it was a vow that was intended to be made for a period of time, whether that time period was a month or a season or a year but for a season. The main sticking points to this vow that we have to remember as we follow the story of Samson's life, you have to remember these three main things that that the angel of the Lord told Samson's mother that he should not ever be doing. Okay, The first one is he should not drink any wine or other alcoholic drink. Step two is he should never cut his hair. A razor should never touch his head. And the third one says he can never be uh, essentially in the presence of a dead body or touch a dead body. Right? It actually goes as far there in Numbers uh, in verse 7 to say that even if your family were to die during the time of your vow, you cannot be near the body. Right? No, no, no preparing the body for burial, no being present in the same room for services. It's a pretty extreme vow. No alcohol, no haircuts, no dead bodies. Right? That's the deal that Samson has essentially signed up for. And again, if you want to read more about that, you can go back to Numbers chapter 6. But for now, keep those three things in mind and keep them in mind for the next three weeks as we're going to, 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 to look at these things that Samson was to be kept from and see how well he did at keeping himself from them. His mother even was supposed to be kept from these things while he was in the womb so he would be a Nazarite from birth. Again, we're going to tell the whole story of Samson. We're not just going to tell the story of Samson that you've heard in children's church before. And as we tell the story, we need to look at how many of these things could Samson possibly fail at? One of them? Two of them? Could he fail at all three over and over again, possibly? I mean, the chosen one, God's elect, couldn't possibly fail over and over again, could he? Would Samson really break God's law over and over and over again? As we approach the story of Samson, this, this epic story, it is important also that you remember that right now, Israel, spiritually, is probably at its lowest point. We've already seen and talked about this cycle of redemption, that it's beginning to peter out. And it's not, it's not petering out and coming to an end because their God is unwilling, but it's because the people, after generations of failure, they have just sunk so low. And perhaps that's why God needs to approach the solution to the problem differently this time. Maybe that's why he goes back again and he tells one of his favorite stories that he has in his repertoire. Maybe that's why he approaches a childless couple with good news. See, the people of Israel, they are so far gone, they don't even know who it is that they're asking for help to anymore. Uh, One commentator I read this week put it this way. He said, The word of Yahweh was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent, and the lamp of God was in danger of going out. The couple that God chooses as Samson's parents, there's nothing here in the scripture that tells us that they were faithful in keeping God's word. And how could they be faithful at fully keeping God's word if it had all but disappeared from the land? Even when it's time for them to go and name this miracle baby that they've been given. What we see is that they're confused. We see they even mess this part of the equation up. If you think back to everyone's favorite story of an angel visiting a woman with good news, right? in that story, the angel leaves no doubt as to what the baby should be named. It's Matthew 1, verses 20 and 21. It says, As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. God made sure, and he left no doubt as to what the name of his one and only son was to be. So they did. They named the baby Jesus. But with Samson, with God's temporary, God's limited Redeemer, he gave no naming instructions. And this couple of supposed Israelites from the, the, the tribe of Dan, they're shocked, and they're confused, and they're lost. And they name this miracle boy given to them by their God. They name him Samson, which is it's a unique name. And there's a couple different theories about what the name means, but the most common one that's agreed upon is that it means little son. Isn't that cute? So it's not S-O-N, it's S-U-N, little son. And again, there can be debate about why they would choose this name, but it's coincidental that these Israelites, who conceive and bear a child via via miracle, that they name their boy Little Son. Where they're living, the people surrounding them worship the Canaanite sun god it leads us to at least have to question if they even understood who the God was that had blessed them in this way. You see, while the the break from the darkness this week might be appreciated, the truth is that we can never let our eyes stray too far from what the real message of the book of Judges is. And again, if, if you thought the first half of this sermon series was indeed strange, What I want to tell you is that everything up to this point, it's been like a roller coaster who's who's still climbing the hill. A very slow and steady and very deliberate climb. And today we find ourselves precariously perked at the top of the summit. And you know when you're sitting at the top of the roller coaster, doesn't it? It pauses for like that brief second, doesn't it? Feels like an eternity before you start going down, but in actuality it's only a half of a second. And that's where we are today in that brief pause at the summit. We all know what happens after the summit, right? The ride goes down fast. And from here on out, there will be enough twists and enough turns to make you throw your hands up in the air and just let the ride take you wherever it is that it has to go. But for for today, it is nice that we get a chance to bask in what is actually some incredible hope. You see, there's hope for us here in the fact that during the greatest ignorance, the time of greatest ignorance of God's chosen people, that they still were not left alone. God was continuing to move. Because his story of hope and his story of redemption, it will not be derailed by the poor choices of men. And the hope for today is that we serve a God that even when everything around us honestly seems to be going to hell, he remains committed to see his kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. And I know that you look around and you watch the news and you see what's happening around you, and sometimes it does not feel that way. When we hear about politics and wars and natural disasters and shootings and all of the evil that exists in the world, I know sometimes even the strongest of us can feel our faith waver. We can start to wonder if it is true that God has left us to our own devices, that we're going to have to either sink or swim you know, based on our own accord. But the story of Samson's birth reminds us that that is the farthest thing from the truth. Now, I can only see things from my very tiny, very small, very limited perspective from my moment of existence. And I remind you that God sees things from a perspective that we cannot understand nor fathom. So I don't get to be able to stand here today and explain to you how it will all work together for His will how it will all come together for the good of those who love Him, other than to remind you of the words of Jesus. You see, these words were were true the day that Jesus uttered them. These words I'm going to read to you, they're, they're still true today. And in some way, again, that I can't fully comprehend either, they were also true in the time of Judges. It's Luke 21, it's verses 25 through 28. Jesus says, There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. See, the world was very, very dark when that angel came and visited Samson's parents. And you know, the world was still very dark when that angel visited Mary with good news. And guess what? The world is still dark today. See, the lesson that I hope we take from this today is that the darkness of the world has never slowed down our God. In fact, quite the opposite, the darkness flees when he shows up. God imposes his will in spite of the darkness in the world. Because it's not our story, it's his story. Right? This is his narrative. And as promised, there will come a time when the darkness is going to end. So for us today, I encourage you to stand up straight, to hold your head up high, and remember that Jesus is returning. Pray with me.